welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this time by Squarespace. Liftoff is a fortnightly show, unless we take a fortnight off like we just did. Mm-hmm. But you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space, related subjects, our release schedule. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I am joined in the new year by my co-host, Jason Snell. Happy 2020, Stephen. It's the year of commercial crew, I guess, again. <laughs> Woo! I left the yeah. streamers up from last year, so it's just the party it's- never ended. Yeah, I'm just re-gifting you the gift I gave you last year for what, Commercial Crew. What do you give somebody for the year of Commercial Crew? Uh, a helmet? A spacesuit? <laughs> I don't know. Something like that. That's exciting. Yeah. We're going to get to that because there's some Commercial Crew stuff to talk about. But I wanted to start the new decade off on the right foot and talk about the James Webb Telescope. All right. All right. This is good. This is good. It's not. This is not the year of the James Webb Space Telescope, but no. we may be getting close. We may be getting close. So NASA says that the James Webb is still on track for a launch in March 2021. This is a date that they first talked about last year. They've recommitted to that date, and uh, they also provided a little bit of a status update of what's going on. So the telescope is about to undergo vibration and acoustic testing. They want to simulate launch. We've talked about this with other missions in the past where they fold it up and they basically just shake it real hard and see if any uh, washers or nuts fall out. Turns out that has happened on previous tests, so they have some repairs to do. But after that's all wrapped up, they will be test deploying the large solar shield and the telescope itself uh, once again to ensure that these tests didn't create any new problems. The James Webb is like a piece of origami, right? You have to cram it all into a, a payload fairing, and then once it's out in space, it will unfold like a flower, and they want to really make sure that all those moving parts, all of those mechanisms uh, do what they're supposed to do, because there's no repairing this with any sort of current flight hardware. This is way out there past the moon. We can't go up there uh, like we did with the shuttle and Hubble. This has got to work, and so they're going to they're gonna run through that process again and uh, with an eyeball towards March 2021. As a reminder... We joke about the year commercial crew. It's been the decade of the James Webb. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, the final cost is going to be close to 10 billion, it looks like. I think they're at 9.7 or so, is what they're saying now. Uh, Congress has given them budget caps and then extensions on that cap repeatedly. We've talked a lot about that over the years, but uh, it's kind of nice to talk about the James Webb and not <laughs> the, he- the headline not be another delay. So, uh, I wanted to start this because it's kind of a, a good story about the James Webb, and we don't get those too often, unfortunately. No, that's right. It's exciting to know that we seem to have reached that point where they, you know, I'm sure that there's some unexpected something that'll crop up because those happen, but it seems like they're getting close to like packing up the suitcase and loading it and getting ready to, you know, head out for that Lagrange point where they're going to, you know, take spectacular measurements that i mean this is the thing right behind all of this is this thing is going to be amazing when it gets out there it is going to increase our knowledge we're going to talk about exoplanets in a little bit like increase our knowledge of the universe in the in ways that the hubble did and still does mm-hmm. um and this is the this is the next one these come along you know not very often so it's a it's a big thing it's nice that we're getting to the point where uh it is actually going to get out there finally. I'm, yeah, I'm really excited for that that launch day. Yeah, and all the science that follows it should be pretty great. Um, I've got an item here about exoplanets. I guess we should just go right into that, huh? Oh, that's a good transition. 
It's less yeah. good since I drew attention to it, but still yeah. Well, good. that's. I mean, we, it was sitting right there. So one of the <laughs> obviously there, there are lots of things we've been talking about the decade of exoplanets. In fact, of uh, of last decade, uh, how we've gone. We said repeatedly on this show, like it's one of those areas where human knowledge has gone from zero to. Uh, as we said in the last episode, overwhelming to the point where it's a problem. Like there's so many exoplanet candidates that it's overwhelming. Um, One big goal among many in the exoplanet search is to see if we can find Earth analogs, Earth-sized planets, rocky planets in the habitable zone of their stars like we are, because that's sort of the, the question of, can we find us? Can we find a planet that is like us? How rare are Earths? That has a lot to do with... um conjecture about how life might exist in the galaxy part of the question is how you know part of the question is is there life on things that aren't earth-like and that's when we talk about things like enceladus and europa or searching for life on on mars Mm -hmm. Uh, that's part of the equation but the other part of the equation is okay there's one place where we know there's life and it's earth can we find other earths how common are they in the galaxy so looking for earth-sized worlds in the habitable zone which is where there's liquid water it's up a temperature where it hasn't been boiled off, and it's also not an ice ball. Um, turns out there are not that many that we have found so far, and part of that is, po- you know, how we measure these things. It's harder to see smaller things that are further away. So we've seen a lot of big planets and a lot of close planets and a lot of big close planets, which is all those hot Jupiters and 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 Neptunes and super Earths, maybe. Um, so it's not necessarily that Earth is rare. It may or may not be. Uh, but our measurements are uh, make it harder to see things that are Earth-like. But a new Earth-sized world in a habitable zone, one of a very few, was found by TESS, the uh, transiting exoplanet. I don't know the whole name, but yeah, it's a it's an exoplanet <laughs> uh, satellite. I, I was gonna I, I I made a run at it, like I, I knew what TESS stood for, but then I forgot. It's transiting exoplanet something something. Uh, <laughs> seems to be about the size of the Earth. This new one, oh, it's in a habitable yeah, zone. You were close. Transiting exoplanet survey satellite. Survey satellite. Yeah, yeah. something, something. Like I said, I, that's that's basically right. Um, okay, it's about the size of the Earth. That's great. It's in a habitable zone. Awesome. Um, but it is one of these red dwarfs, which are by far the most common star. And the problem with red dwarfs is they're very small. They're very cool. And that means for a planet to be in the habitable zone, it has to be very, very close to the star. Uh, That also means that this planet is tidally locked, which means one side of it is permanently facing the star. If you think about a planet that's tidally locked, um, it's actually like our moon is tidally locked to the Earth, which means one side of it faces the Earth all the time and the other side faces away from the Earth all the time. So this planet is like that. It's facing its star. So half of it is always daytime and the other half is always night. Um, And of course, there's a question of if this really is a, is there a habitable zone in a red dwarf star uh, vicinity? Because red dwarfs tend to be flary. They put out lots of solar flares. And the idea there is it's going to kill, sterilize basically any planet that uh, is nearby. Um, that's the sort of uh, general thought. But the the people who were looking at this particular star looked for, uh, they said, 11 months with tests and didn't see a single flare. Um, it may be an older star and has calmed down, and that may be the way the life cycle works. Um, right. And it's actually a three exoplanet system, but the two closest ones are way too toasty. They're on the, uh, on the uh, 
uh, hot side. They're, they're, they're a little too close to this, even though this is a relatively cool star. They are way too close. But this one is just inside the habitable range. So on the, you know, kind of warm side of it, but it's, it's absolutely in there. So there could be liquid water on the surface, but they don't really know because their mass measurement isn't super fine. It could be a mini Neptune. They're hoping that it's a rocky planet. And they haven't measured an atmosphere, so they can't tell if it has an atmosphere. But it's got a lot of the good specs, a lot of the good stats for being an Earth-like planet in a habitable zone. Right. We talked about that in the TRAPPIST system, right? That some of those planets look like they were in the habitable zone, but then it's believed that the star would basically sterilize those planets if anything was there. So you can have all the ingredients, if you will, but if the star is not conducive to it as well with solar radiation and flares, then it kind of doesn't matter because nothing could survive there anyways. Yeah, and I I don't know the dynamics of like could you survive on the on the side that's facing away from the star or does it matter and I I don't know but it is one of those things that we don't the red dwarfs are really interesting because they're so common so we need to understand more about them and we don't understand as much as maybe we we uh, need to because they're so common and there's this question of are they too flary or are they okay or do they settle down what's you know what's the story there so but it's it's an exoplanet Earth analog and that's uh, that's good. While we're talking about stars, uh, there's a couple stories in here that you found about the sun's solar cycle. Yeah. Um, did you know, Stephen, that there's the sun um, has an 11-year cycle? I did not know it was 11 years. So I, I've. It's funny. It's a magnetic activity cycle that is generally thought to be because as the sun uh, rotates, uh, you get this effect where the um, the it's rotating at different speeds at the equator and at the poles. And so you end up with kind of like twisty, turny um, magnetic fields that eventually stress all the way out. And then they kind of like flip and they reset. Um, you know, the star, the, the sun is incredibly important, but it's so complicated that it's an, an area that we, we know a lot about, but there's a lot more that we don't understand about how it works. And Um, which is kind of fascinating. Like there's a limit to our knowledge and we try to learn more. Um, And this is one of the interesting things that we've learned in observing the sun is that it does have this 11-year cycle that is basically all about the sunspots, um, little dark patches on the sun that are actually just cooler regions that are lower down that are exposed uh, due to intense magnetic activity. Um, But from a distance, it looks like there's a little black spot on the sun today. That's a reference. Mm, It's good. And uh, sometimes the sunspots can become solar storms. They shoot out particles into space. They do things like disrupt the power grid or fry satellites. That's bad, but only if they're aimed in our direction. But that does happen sometimes at the peak of solar activity. So it's an 11-year cycle, and we just reached the end. In fact, I was reading how um, in late November and through December, there were basically no sunspots visible for more than a month, which is that is solar low. That's like no sunspots. But in the last week or so, there have been a couple little tiny sunspots that have been seen, which is a little like the groundhog seeing its shadow, I guess, kind of, because it's like, <laughs> here it is. It is. It's back. We're, we're doing this again. And in five and a half years, it'll reach a crescendo and there'll be a lot of sunspots and who knows whether they're going to be solar storms and stuff like that. Um, but what I read while I was reading about this, something interesting that um, this is cycle 25, they call it. So we've been looking at these cycles for a long time, but we've only seen 25 of them because they're an 11 year, it's an 11 year cycle. There are some studies suggesting that the, some solar cycles may be more active than others, and we may be heading for a cycle that is a lot less active. So over the next 11 years, one of the interesting things that will happen is 
there's this question of like how many sunspots, how active is this cycle? Because there are probably like cycles within the cycles and without of the cycles. So the, the cycles themselves are 11 years, but there may be other ways to measure like whether those cycles are intense or a little more laid back. But okay. anyway, the, the groundhog saw the sunspot and therefore we have begun uh, cycle 25. All right. Yeah, there's there's something interesting that jumped out in these articles too, is that the um, the change in polarity can cause cause the sunspots basically to show up in like these really interesting patterns. So there's this graphic on this life science article about sun cycle 24 and then uh, projected for 25 and where these new spots are and how they relate to each other as the sun's, like you said, the very intense, very complicated magnetic field does its thing over time. Yeah, it's the, the sun is really complicated, like, it is. and it's un, and it's outside of human conception in a way, right? Where like planets are like, I, okay, I kind of get it. And gas giants is like, okay, that's a little weird. And then you get to the sun, and it's like, whoa, this is because it's it's like there's there's a lot of dynamic activity and and chaos, like the, like in the gas giants too. When we talk about like uh, the great red spot on Jupiter and you know how long it's been there, or all the the polar. Uh, vortexes, vortices at uh, in around Saturn and and Jupiter that we can see. Um, it, it, you've got a very large body with uh, a lot of gas and a lot of energy and a lot of magnetism and a lot of radiation. And there's like there's a lot going on. And building a model, I mean, we've we've come a long way. Again, I, I'm not going to say we don't know things about the sun, but like it's so complex that it can be hard to understand. Uh, exactly what's going on, given our limited ability to to uh, observe it. So, and over a limited time, right? It's very hard. Even if we're really, really good now at observing it, we haven't had as much time to observe it at this level of detail. So, even if there's something there that we're seeing, we don't quite know whether that's a thing that um, repeats or is a one-off. Or you know, it, it just takes time. So, mm-hmm. it's really interesting stuff. Uh, shift gears a little bit and talk about something that you can put your mind around or your hands mm. around. Space mm-hmm. Lego. Space Lego. I, I put this in the show notes for you, for you, because yeah. you buy Space Lego. You have, you may. I don't think it's a problem. I think it's a uh, a great thing that you buy Space Lego and 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 make it. Yeah, yeah. In my studio, I have the space shuttle from the '80s, the cool one, the lunar lander they did this year, and then the Saturn V from I think last year or two years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Saturn V is humongous. And some of those were through the Lego Ideas program where people pitch ideas, the community votes on them, and then Lego itself, the company, blesses some of the ideas and turns them into sort of official things. I think they did a, the Curiosity rover at some point this way too. And the the next one up, which will be out in February, is the International Space Station. This was sort of actually knocked out of contention by Lego, and then they allowed the fan base to like basically vote. If they had enough votes, they would do it anyways. And and so it is uh it's coming. It it actually hasn't been announced yet. It leaked because the designer is going to be signing boxes in Germany. And so the yeah. des- the design and the nothing the, gets past the Lego the eyes yeah. of Lego fans, right? It's true. It's a whole world. Uh so this should be out uh the very end of January, early February and uh I think it looks pretty good. I'm excited to uh, get it and uh, put it together. I have no idea how big it is. It doesn't look humongous, but I don't know. It's hard to tell scale from uh, from the box. The Saturn V, I can tell you, is huge. Our, our uh, trip to Johnson Space Center um, makes me have an even greater affinity for this because we saw a few different kind of mock-ups, right? We saw, the, we saw some of the mock-ups that were in that warehouse kind of space, and then we also yeah. saw the portions of it that were in the pool. Mm-hmm. 
And so it's fun to then look at this, uh, this, you know, spy shot of a box in Germany yeah, <laughs> uh, and be like, oh, that's like, you know, I, I can kind of see it. And then, of course, the big solar panels are there and it's, uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah. So. A little Lego space shuttle there, it looks like, which maybe it will help set the scale. Yeah, this will be fun. I will, uh, I'll share pictures with this because I, I planned on picking it up. Got to do it. Got to do it. SpaceX. Yeah, I got a weird one. This is uh, this sort of follow-up. We've been talking about it before, but there was a really good piece uh, today as we record this from Lauren Grush over at The Verge that people should check out. That is a great kind of like overview of what all the issues are with SpaceX and the Starlink uh, satellite constellation that, um, again, we talked about it because I think I think one of the bottom lines, I was in that space law segment that I did the one time. Yeah, not a recurring segment, I've noticed. I could have made this space law, I suppose, but I didn't. Yeah. Uh, so SpaceX is already the operator of the world's largest constellation of satellites because they've launched 180 Starlink satellites. They launch them 60 at a time. They use their own rockets, which are often many, many, many times reused, which really kind of like, hey, free rocket, essentially, for, for SpaceX. Sure. It's part of the great thing about the reusability, and they don't have to kind of provide the warranty on the really old ones that have been yeah. used a the lot because most... they're, they're, they're their own client at that point. Right. The most recent one, I think, I believe was its third trip to space. Yeah. So it's, it's not like they're going to blow up uh, because they're so old, but like there is an advantage for them being their own client because they don't, the insurance is, is different if they even do insurance on those launches because they are doing it themselves. But they do them 60 at a time. So they've done three of these, which means they have 180 of these satellites up there. And their plan is to launch, you, you might be thinking like, wow, 180, that's a lot. It's like, no, they they plan to launch tens of thousands of these things so that they can create this constellation over the entire Earth that even as it moves, there's always one that's visible so that they can provide internet service. And this is their, this is, a, a SpaceX business plan is they're building these satellites, they're going to put them everywhere, and then you're going to be able to get a receiver wherever you are in the world, and you're going to be able to get uh, high-speed, uh, relatively low latency, I think is the plan, internet, um, and and that would be you know great, but they have to launch tens of thousands of these, these satellites. And one of the problems with this is astronomy. Uh, astronomers are really worried that this is going to ruin a lot of Earth-based observations, which, as we know how hard it is to get, like, the James Webb up there, um, most of our observations are Earth-based, right? We don't we don't have a lot of space telescopes, but we have a lot of really big, really good telescopes on mountaintops on Earth. Um, people are also worried about debris, um, space traffic, uh, near misses, and potential collisions, which would create more debris in low Earth orbit. Um, these are shiny, they are way brighter than I think even SpaceX expected. Now, SpaceX is, it says that they're actually experimenting one of the 180 satellites, one of the last 60 that went up, actually had a, an experimental covering, a coating to make it mm-hmm. less reflective. So it's, you know, they are, they are hearing the criticism and saying, you know, their goal is not to position these in a way where they are everywhere and you can, everywhere you look, there's a shiny SpaceX thing and uh, all astronomy is messed up. They, they don't want that to be the case. Um, that said, they're also not stopping their plans to make these things and launch them. And as we pointed out in that space law episode, there's really no global authority that approves this and says, no, 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 you know, you, you need to do more work before you do this. Like, they already got the FCC to approve like 12,000 of these, and uh, they're continuing on. So there's a... Um, a lot of concern 
And it sounds like SpaceX is interested in listening, but they're and and doing what they can. But SpaceX is also not interested in stopping, and there doesn't seem to be anyone who could stop them if they wanted to. So it's a something to keep watching because um, this is this is a an example of a hole in kind of uh, space law and uh, how a determined company that's got money and access to space and some approvals from their local government can just do what they want in space and the fallout may affect uh, you know uh, ground-based astronomy forever but uh, that may not be enough to stop them yeah lauren has a couple images in her article one uh is a time lapse from the ground and you can see them passing through the sky very clearly and then there's some uh uh, photos from an observatory in uh, Chile that has these just bright streaks through the images. Yep. And you can imagine how that would uh, effectively blind a lot of these Earth-based uh, telescopes if they can't if they can't see past this light. Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a real issue. And, I you know, I don't think SpaceX wants to be a bad neighbor and want, they want their, you know, their business venture. But I think they also don't want to have a bad reputation in the space industry about this, and that includes astronomers. Um, but again, it seems like there's not a lot of leverage right now against them. They're just sort of doing it because they don't want people to be mad at them, and they want to be seen as a good citizen. But there's also no sort of like let's you know let's find some body that will deliberate and come up with a solution and make SpaceX follow it. That's not a thing that is happening and may not be able to happen. So we'll just have to keep an eye on it. I'm going to put a link in the show notes. Uh, someone put a website together where you can view, uh, you know, based on your location where you may see Starlink um, overhead. Mm. And it kind of tells you where to look and what to look for. So, All right. I'll go look. Pretty wild. Cool. All right. I think it is that time, Jason. It is time for the... SLS segment, Space Launch System segment explaining geopolitics, mechanical systems, engineering achievements, news, and trivia. SLS segment. I call this edition of the SLS segment On a Boat. <laughs> okay. You can just sing the song to your Yeah, you Is know, the SLS on a boat? It was. Oh, okay. Or maybe still is, but it definitely was. So we've talked a lot about this, about the green run at Stinnes. And before the break, we were talking about how the the first core stage of the first SLS uh, was wrapping up completion that happened over our break. So it's got all the uh, shuttle engines on the bottom of it. All the nuts are tied. Everything is sealed up. It is ready to go. So NASA has this huge barge called Pegasus. It, back in the shuttle days, it was used to carry the external fuel tank. Versions of it have been used even further back in history. But it, the core stage was loaded onto the barge on January 8th made its way to the Stennis Space Center uh, uh, on the 13th, so yesterday as we record this, and the team there will be working on lifting it into place uh, atop the B2 test stand for the Green Run test, which again is a full-length firing of the core stage, uh, just like it will be during takeoff to make sure mm -hmm. that everything is working correctly. And we spoke a couple of episodes ago about the SLS mock-up, where they were... Uh, practicing the maneuvers to pick this thing up and put it on the test stand because 
you do not want to drop the only SLS in the world. No. You don't want to do that. No. That would that'd be a bad day for everybody. So uh, they will be uh, working towards that over the the next couple of weeks. And uh, NASA says that uh, it and Boeing are aiming to deliver the first core to Kennedy Space Center uh, this fall. So again, with a, a launch expected in 2021. Of course, that is all dependent on the green run going well. Uh, that does not have a date yet, but it will be in the the coming months, and I'm sure that we will talk about it as it gets closer. So wait a second. Is it, is it possible that 2021 is going to be the year of the SLS and the year of the James Webb? It could be. I mean, uh, right now NASA says that. Hmm. So so 2024 then. Oh, no. Why did I have to oh, do that? man. Come on. James Webb is not using the SLS. They're separate. But yes. yeah, they could both be in the, in the same year. Mm-hmm. Boy, that would just be a real bad... <laughs> Can you imagine if that were the case? It's like, uh, it's a race, but it, no one's winning. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so the Green Run will use 700,000 gallons of liquid hydrogen and oxygen, fire that thing yeah. off, 2 I, million pounds of thrust. Have I said this it's, before? It's going to be amazing. I love the idea. As a kid, I never imagined that you tested rockets by literally just firing them with like a bar holding them down. Yeah. Like, yeah. well, it's it could fly into space, but instead we're just going to kind of hold it here. Yeah, we got some zip ties on the corners. I'm sure it'll be fine. Wow, it's cool, and I love I love looking at footage of previous uh, test firings at Stennis and photos, and because you're, it is so, it's so sort of captures the imagination in a way that's sort of strange, like you said, right? like we're this is a rocket, but it's just going to do everything but fly. We're going to prevent it from flying, and. Uh, it's it'll be a lot of fun to watch that. I'm sure they'll live stream it. I'm sure that we'll watch it. Uh, maybe we'll do a live stream of that. Those can be really exciting sometimes. So uh, that will be coming up. And it is uh, really after the green run, it's sort of downhill all the way to, you know, mating it with the solid rocket boosters on the side and putting the Orion on top. So this is uh, inching closer and closer to the big day, most definitely. All right. Green run. Yay. Remember when they said they weren't, that they, maybe they were considering not doing it? Just not doing, not it? doing it. Yeah. That's a, I'm glad they're doing mm-hmm. it. <laughs> I think that, I think uh, cooler heads prevailed with that one. All right. So that is, we've caught up on a lot of stuff, Jason. I know we did. We did like a lot of pre-flight checklists and then we loaded our uh, podcast into the test stand and <laughs> fired, mm-hmm. it took, took it on a boat, then took it to the test stand, fired it off. Um, yeah. And we still have a couple of uh, really big topics to, to deal with, but we should probably take a break before we do that. Yeah. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Squarespace. Make your next move with Squarespace. It's the best place to easily create a website for your next idea, project, or business. You can get a domain name, use award-winning templates, and much more. Maybe you need to create an online store or a portfolio. Maybe you want to write a blog or host a podcast or a photo galleries, whatever it is. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that lets you do it. And there's nothing to install. There's no patches to worry about. You don't have to become some sort of uh, server person. It's all taken care of because Squarespace has got it covered. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need any help at all that you easily and quickly grab a unique domain name. And all of those award-winning templates are beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. I just this week started a Squarespace site for the uh, parent-teacher organization at my kids' elementary school. Their previous website was built on some other system. The guy who built it has been long gone. No one could update it. It just totally breaks on the iPhone and iPad. 
And we're going to rebuild it in Squarespace. And I got that started. And it's so easy to pick a template and just start adding content and, and getting something up and running that looks great. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com liftoff. When you decide to sign up, use the offer code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain name and to show your support for the show. Once again, that's squarespace.com liftoff and the code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase. I'd like to thank Squarespace for the support of the show and all of FM. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. We uh, we had some topics about commercial crew and about astronauts, and you combined them into one big topic called human spaceflight update. And uh, I'm going to start with SpaceX and commercial crew. They have been working towards a in-flight abort test. So, so a lot of our listeners are familiar with this, but the idea is that you – uh, fire your launch vehicle and, you know, oh my gosh, something bad is happening <laughs> during launch or shortly thereafter on your way to orbit. And you need to pull the, in this case, the crew dragon capsule, but pull the capsule away from the rest of the rocket, uh, that in-flight abort. So SpaceX will be testing that. Uh, it was supposed to be uh, last week, and now they're targeting no earlier than Saturday, January 18th. Yeah. This will take place at uh, Launch Complex 39A. So it's at Kennedy, not at SpaceX's, you know, uh, Florida uh, facility where the, or uh, Texas facility where they do some of the, their test stuff. It'll be in Florida. And um, this is this will be a heck of a thing to watch. These are really cool. Blue Origin has done one of these. I mean, it's a, it's a rocket launch. It's a real rocket launch. And then they do the in-flight abort. A second baby launch. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and then keep in mind that these are the. This is the thing that when they were doing it on the test stand, it exploded. Uh, so then they had to redesign uh, some stuff, and they also had the, the kind of like the parachute issues that they were working on. That they've also these are like the last kind of steps before they can get uh, a, a flight on the schedule. There, it won't be right away because there's still a bunch of interim steps before they actually do the commercial crew flight. But like this is the last big one. And then they start, if it's successful, they start scheduling and doing all mm-hmm. the next steps so that they put astronauts in that capsule and send them to the, the ISS. And so by the time we talk again in two weeks, we should know if SpaceX is finally kind of on um, in, in the queue to go and be the first American crewed launch since the last space shuttle mission. Of course, SpaceX isn't the only company uh, in this game. Mm. Boeing is there with their Starliner. Yes, but it what had... about Boeing, Stephen? What about Boeing uh, has been having some trouble in the like, and that is an understatement in the news lately. How is Starliner yeah. going? It's not the worst thing Boeing has going, but it's not the best <laughs> okay, thing great. Boeing has going either. Great. Uh, uh, new CEO, all sorts of fun stuff. Mm-hmm. So, during the break, uh, they had their uncrewed test flight to the space station, so it's all automated, and turns out that uh, automation is tricky, and it was unable to rendezvous and dock with the International Space Station. I was following along with this, as I think you were. It was very confusing as it was unfolding. Boeing and NASA weren't talking a lot, and it, there was a lot of conjecture about what may have happened. Well, it turns out the core issue is that the mission elapsed timer. So the clock that starts running, uh, telling the spacecraft basically what time it is. And and when it's all automated, 
that clock is super important because it tells the spacecraft, okay, now it is time to start this burn, stop this burn, pitch this way. All of those things are tied back to the mission elapsed timer. And it was off by 11 hours or so. And I think they're still trying to figure out the root cause of that. But basically, it meant that the spacecraft was confused about what its state was. And so the launch was fine. There was no issue with the launch vehicle. It separated. Everything was fine. But then it burned too much propellant achieving orbit. And because it didn't think it was in orbit yet because the time was all off. Mm -hmm. And this was made more complicated by the fact that apparently the spacecraft was basically passing over a gap in NASA's coverage. So NASA can talk to uh, these spacecraft via satellite and ground control stations. And there are gaps in that. It's not 100% coverage. And as this was going on, the spacecraft was in one of these blackout areas. And so even NASA and Boeing really weren't sure for a little while what was happening. They were trying to send signals to it to want to get through. And by the time it was sort of understood what had happened, getting to the space station was basically out of the question. They didn't have enough propellant to do it um, because they had to catch up with it. And so that was out of the question. But it seemed like the early fears of, you know, it's out of control, it's tumbling, which is one story that kind of came out. Uh, Basically, all that stuff sort of settled down and they were able to put it into a stable orbit. They left in orbit for about 48 hours. Because even though docking and rendezvous, that's actually the requirement in the commercial crew contract. Like you have to go do that. And Boeing hasn't done that now. But even the uh, even without that taking place, there were other measurements and lots of other information that was being gathered during this flight, right? They want to see how the Starliner handles in uh, low Earth orbit. So by all accounts, the rest of it was fairly successful. They got a lot of data they wanted. They landed safely. Remember, they touched down uh, out at White Sands out in the desert. That all went well. And uh, and this is kind of where we are now. They're still trying to work out what happened. What I think the most interesting thing to me in all of this is a comment from Brian Stein. It's been echoed by others that had a crew been on board, A, they would not have been in danger. This wasn't an issue, you know, where the spacecraft was out of control. It just burned incorrectly because it didn't know what time it was. But had that happened, had it have been automated and crew could have been on board, they could have simply overridden it and stopped it from misbehaving, stopped the malfunction, and and maybe even worked to reset the mission elapsed timer from the spacecraft itself. So in a sense, this is a, a success because, yes, the spacecraft had an issue, but it's an issue that could have been overcome by a human crew. Right. But but it is a failure according to the commercial crew agreement because they did not dock and rendezvous. Yep. And so my understanding is that they're going to have to repeat this. That is unclear if NASA is going to enforce that or not, which I think is interesting. Uh, that's just unknown at the time of our recording. I don't see, given that SpaceX had to put its capsule up there and they had to do all the docking and that was sort of the point was that they have the whole docking procedure and you want to go through all of that. I can see the counter argument, which is if we have people on board and we take them to the ISS and we do the docking and the docking doesn't work for whatever reason, they just return home. Like there's no, you could test that with people, but I also look at it and I think, well, you made SpaceX actually test this in an, in an uncrewed mission. Um, but, you know, I can see both sides of it. So it'll be interesting to see what they 
what they ask for because I, in in my opinion if you do a launch like this and you fail to get to the ISS you should probably do another test but I can see the argument that it's a thing that would have been handled by people and uh, you could you can test the docking procedures with people as well. Yeah, so uh, we will see. It's just we'll see. That'll probably break after we publish this because that's how these things go. Yeah. Um, well. But a very kind of intense couple of days watching this. And but, you know, they, they touched it down safely. No parachute issues, which SpaceX has had issues with. Uh, with the Crew Dragon, everything else worked fine. And if it was just this mission lapse timer, if they can work out what happened. And it's from a couple of things I read, it's not out of the realm possibility that it was human error in, in setting it. So it, it may just be a procedure change and it's and it's good to go. But uh, I think they're still kind of digging into what happened. Yeah. So they're not the only two. They're, they're, there's always one more. Uh, Sierra Nevada's Dream Chaser, which remember is like the space shuttle that was left in the uh, dryer too long, the little baby space shuttle. Uh, it's part of the cargo program, so yeah. it's not commercial crew necessarily, although they want to be in the future, and there's, I think they're sort of next in line for commercial crew. Yeah, they've got, a, they've got like a, a deal where they've got a contract that is not funded, but that is there that would allow them to explore the idea of doing a crewed version of the Dream Chaser. Um, you know, cause it's adorable. It looks like a space shuttle and, uh, they are part of the cargo program. They are planning to fly. 2021 can also be the year of the dream chaser, Stephen. <laughs> we're just putting, putting all those things in one basket for now. Um, and it's, it's cool. I didn't actually realize this. They, they actually can launch it with this cargo module stuck on the back of it. And, um, the, the cargo module, so increases the, the cargo capacity of this thing. Um, the module just gets dumped at the end and burns up in the atmosphere. It doesn't come back, but they can, they can add on to their capacity. And then, yeah, the main part, just like it's an automated landing at, at, on the runway at Kennedy Space Center, which is pretty, pretty cool. NASA says that they have no, you know, real direct interest in using it for crewed missions, but Sierra Nevada is still, and this is why I stuck it in your, um, your commercial crew. You're like, why is this here? Uh, is Sierra Nevada thinks it's still viable for crewed missions in a modified version. They have a new version of it that was that that would have crew in it. Um, and they say there is interest, the quote is, there is interest in the crewed version, not necessarily NASA, but other customers. That's really interesting, right? So there may be someone else who wants to send people into space, who knows, maybe even to the ISS, but it might not necessarily be NASA, although I would imagine that if they got crewed launch capacity, they would NASA would consider it a, a possibility too. Um, and they made an interesting hire, which is um, Janet Cavandi, who is a former astronaut, and she was also the director of uh, NASA's Glenn facility. Um, she's now the senior vice president of space exploration systems at Sierra Nevada. And she said the thing that got her interested in Sierra Nevada was the possibility that they could do a crude version of Dream Chaser. So the, the, even though Dream Chaser did not initially get selected as a commercial crew, they picked SpaceX and Boeing, um, they, they have parlayed their, kind of their, uh, their cargo money for developing this while in, into like moving the whole thing along while also kind of holding out hope that they may end up turning it into a, a crewed vehicle. And I think that would be really interesting because then there would be an additional ride to low Earth orbit, to the ISS, um, to who knows what. I mean, I, I, I thought about things like you could, could you do a satellite service mission 
with Dream Chaser if you wanted to? I don't know, um, because we don't have the space shuttle anymore. Could you do that with Dream Chaser? Um, could you service the Hubble another time, like with with something like this instead of our other options? I don't know. It's it's just it's it's a, a wrinkle. It's an interesting wrinkle that this thing is still out there. And of course, the next step is that it needs to do its cargo job and uh, prove itself as a, a cargo supplier to the ISS. But I think it's worth keeping an eye on what Sierra Nevada is doing. They're uh, they're doing some interesting stuff. You can see from their perspective that opening this up for crew, whether commercial crew or something else, is is clearly a good decision from like the business perspective as well, right? There's only so much cargo to haul and you're competing with other companies like SpaceX and Boeing and others to do that. But there is this sort of other world of, well, as more people want to do low Earth orbit stuff, being open to that, having a vehicle that's ready for that gives them potentially more areas of business. Well, so I think it's super smart. Yeah, and I think about the ISS, and I, again, I don't know all the politics of the ISS, but if you think about, um, let's say, ESA, right? Like, and the ESA astronauts go to ISS, but they go, right now it's on Soyuz, and, you know, presumably they would they would buy some seats on commercial crew. But I look at something like this, it's like, well, you know, if there's another player, even if NASA is not super... Uh, focused on it and not funding it. Like there are other space agencies that might want to send people to the ISS, let alone other places in low Earth orbit. So there's, I don't know. It's just, uh, it's, it's. There aren't that many players in this, right? In 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 sending people into space. So the fact that there's this other player that has been kind of quietly building a cargo vehicle, but never making a decision that would make it impossible for it to be a crewed vehicle, because they always have kept their eyes on that. It's interesting. We also have some news about some uh, some astronaut stuff. Well, I mean, it's not a crewed mission without astronauts, right? That that is that's where crewed comes mm-hmm. from. Yeah, <laughs> you gotta have a crew. You gotta people. Yeah, if it's not otherwise, it's just seats, empty seats, and that's not a crewed mission. Now it's it's like that SpaceX mission where it's like we got a whole capsule with a mannequin in it. Like it's not the mannequin doesn't count. Mannequin's not an astronaut. Well, they ha- they also had the little uh, fluffy stuffed Earth. Yeah, that's true. Toy. So, I mean, that's not really a crew, but it's not uncrewed. Somewhere in the middle. We're we're off topic now. Mm-hmm. We've really we really lost the plot here. So, astronaut Christina Koch has uh, broken the record for the longest space mission by a female astronaut. This was previously held by Peggy Whitson. That was set in 2017. Uh, the record is 289 days and change. And what's cool about this is that Coke still has several weeks before coming back. She is slated to land uh, from the International Space Station on February 6th. So she's going to break that record, uh, has broken the record, and will add to it quite a bit. Uh, that will be 328 days uh, on this mission, just 12, di- 12 days shy of the Longest single space flight by an astronaut, which, of course, is Scott Kelly at 340 days as part of the the year-long uh, twin study. So coming in just at the heels of that, that was back in 2015, 2016. So, yeah, huge news for uh, for Coke. Very exciting. And um, it's not the record for the most cumulative time in space by an American astronaut. She's not going to break that. But uh, in a single stretch, a, the record has fallen. Mm-hmm. It's a long time. A long time in space, I will tell you. Yeah, that is, woof. You know, Scott Kelly really 
got a lot out of the year long mission thing. And I hope that she, she's able to as well, even though she's sort of the second and a few days shorter, uh, this deserves to be celebrated just as much as his, because these missions really give NASA the information it needs when planning long duration lunar trips, and especially to Mars, understanding what happens to the body in low gravity situations, how to train people for it, how to prepare people for it. This is really valuable work that they're doing, and uh, I hope that she gets the celebration that he did. Hey, speaking of astronauts, you want to tell us about mm-hmm. the new astronauts? There are, there, yes. There's been another... We talk about, like, in the early days, there's, like, the first class and the second class and the third class, mm-hmm. uh, but there's a new astronaut class that, just, uh, that, that has just been brought in. Yeah, so 11 new astronauts welcomed uh, into NASA's stable. What, what do you call a group of astronauts? I don't know. The core, core, astronaut core. core that's the core, it. astronaut core, stable. Uh, so they're that not brings horses, the total... Stephen. Uh, to my knowledge, we've not sent any horses to space yet. Mm. Let's let's hope it stays that way. So it brings the total number to forty-eight. And you may think, why in the world does America need forty-eight astronauts? And uh, they do a bunch of stuff. So the course, there's the International Space Station. There's Artemis coming up maybe by 2024 mm-hmm. or 2026 or whenever it ends up being. So astronauts are training for that. Astronauts are even looking at Mars training, but they're involved in spacecraft design and spacesuit design and construction, That's both right. of which are going on. They're involved in all sorts of things, research. It goes on and on aviation. And so these are very busy 48 people. Um, these were selected for training in 2017. You remember at that time that I tried applying on the show and I didn't meet the uh, requirements for eligibility, not even close, but apparently 18,000 people did apply. (laughs) And so to be one of 11 out of 18,000 is just a real honor and and congratulations to this, these people, um, these men and women. Uh, So the ceremony was on Friday and the there's a tradition dating back to the the Mercury 7, which you talked about a second ago, that astronauts receive a silver pin, and it's traded out for a gold one once they complete their first space flight. That's a big moment in For All Mankind. There's a little scene about that. Yes. And it's, it's just something that I, I like the tradition of it, and the tradition is still in place. So uh, 11 new members of the, the NASA Astronaut Corps, and um, it's a lot of people to keep up with, and I don't pretend to know all their names, but they... Uh, we will get to know them over the years, I'm sure, as Artemis and these other things mm-hmm. continue to unfold. There's some probably, and this is a fun thing to think about, there's probably in that 48 people, the next people to walk on the moon, right? Yeah. It's pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. And uh, two Canadian astronauts also uh, earned their silver pins at the same time. Um, and so it's not just uh, not just NASA, it's our, it's our partners as well. And they did two years of training, and then they will kind of go out into specialized training uh, for what their future missions will be. Nice. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, these astronauts are also flying commercial crew, right? So it's yeah, Starliner and Crew Dragon. So they are busy, busy. Yeah, for sure. Steven, you know how much I like talking about uh, about stars and about other kind of like science-y stuff? Mm-hmm. And I got a good one. This is a great one. And it's something that all, well, not all of our listeners, our our listeners in the Northern Hemisphere, at least, can experience for themselves if they go outside. And uh, this is it. Betelgeuse, a uh, very important star. It's the seventh brightest star in the sky, generally. 
Um, it is the top left star in Orion. So if you look at Orion, which is a very prominent uh, uh, constellation in uh, in the winter in the northern hemisphere, anyway, um, can you see? Can, can they see it in the southern southern hemisphere? I don't think they can. I don't know. Southern hemisphere, you're on so. you're on your own on this one. But uh, top left star is Betelgeuse, and uh, so you look at like Orion's belt, and then you can look up to the left. There's a very bright star there, seventh brightest star in the sky. Except. Something funny has happened the last few months. Beetlejuice has dimmed rapidly and right now would be considered about the 21st brightest star in the sky. There's a lot, lost a lot in the rankings. Uh, what is going on here? So the story is Betelgeuse is what is known as a red supergiant star, which means it's a, a very large star that's at the end of its life. Um, scientists generally think although there's some question about this, that it has reached what is called the helium burning stage. We did an episode about this, about like sort of the life cycle of our own sun and uh, about bigger stars that would go supernova. Uh, basically, when they're on the main sequence, a star is burning hydrogen. They're, they're at its core at incredibly high temperatures. It is converting hydrogen into helium using nuclear fusion. Uh, but at the end of a star's life, it runs out of that hydrogen it's just got this essentially the ash of the hydrogen burning is this core of helium and when you run out of hydrogen in the core the next thing that happens is that the temperatures and pressures raise and the helium starts fusing and that's the the next phase in the life of the star and we think this is what betelgeuse is doing so it's fusing helium at its core into carbon and oxygen there's a whole chain that continues once the the helium is all used up the carbon and oxygen fuse and you you they fuse heavier elements and the the difference is uh, the big challenge is the heavier the elements that are fused the higher the temperature has to be and at, right. and at some point uh and, and like our our sun will never get to that point and which is why our sun will just uh, become a white dwarf, and and that'll be the end of it. But uh, very, 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 very large stars can keep up the pressure, and they can get all the way to iron, but they can't get any. There's no way to get more than that, and so it fails to fuse the iron into anything. There's a core collapse; it explodes. It becomes a supernova. It's uh, pretty dramatic, and it's going to happen to Betelgeuse sometime, but probably not for like a hundred thousand years, because our best guess is that Betelgeuse is just in the helium burning stage. It's not uh, further down the chain, and those those stages are are uh, like the first one burning hydrogen will take um, millions of years. Uh, in the case of our st- our sun, it's billions of years. Um, each successive fusion chain is shorter. So like the last one before the end is very, very brief. It's like hours or maybe a day and then everything goes boom. So Betelgeuse is going to blow up at some point, but probably not in our lifetimes or anywhere close to it. Um, which, you know, given that it's only 700 light years away from us, uh, some people are like, well, what happens? Will, will it destroy life on Earth uh, when it goes? And the answer is no, it won't. 700 light years is pretty far. It's okay. But it will be spectacular. If Betelgeuse went supernova tomorrow, we would, or um, we wouldn't see it for 700 years. But if the light from it going supernova reached us tomorrow, <laughs> let's say it that way. How about that? Science. There you go. Uh, it would be brighter than the full moon. So you could see it in the daytime. Wow. And you could see it... Uh, you could see it at night brighter than the full moon. It'd be pretty spectacular. But again, probably not happening. Betelgeuse is, uh, what's really happening here, Betelgeuse is huge. Um, imagine if 
it's like the size of if the sun extended all the way out to Jupiter. Ooh. Like it's that it's enormous and it's tenuous. It's like the outer reaches of it are, are a lot less kind of dense and, and, uh, and it's been, cause it's expanded as it's le- ended the main sequence part of its life. Um, so it's expanded. It's shaped kind of weirdly. We actually know that it's shaped weirdly because it's the first star that we ever imaged as anything but a point um, other than our own sun because it's so close and it's so huge that we were able to sort of like take pictures of the shape of Betelgeuse and it's it's kind of weird shaped. But what's probably happening is some darker, cooler part of Betelgeuse and it's big mixed up, you know, envelope of gas is facing us right now as part of a complicated cycle. Um, we talk about the solar cycle, like there's probably a fairly complicated cycle it's of, of gas moving around inside uh, the, the envelope of Betelgeuse that uh, depending on like if they coincide, it, it really dims um, a lot. And that may be happening now. There might also be like some dust or something in between us and it that's sort of passed in front of it. There are a lot of thoughts about this, but what uh it's probably involves Betelgeuse itself because its brightness has been variable throughout the history of astronomy it's always been a variable star this isn't anything new although it seems like this might be about the dimmest that we've seen it in modern times and we don't know what it'll do next is it going to get brighter suddenly uh temporarily you know uh slowly is it going to get even dimmer we don't know We, we just have to watch um and there's always the thought that maybe we completely misread this and it is going to explode any moment. Um, although a bunch of stellar astronomers point out that generally the surface of a star is not reflecting the internals at deep at the core. And like lots of variations happening on the outside of the envelope of, of Betelgeuse don't have anything to do really with what's happening at the core and the core is where the supernova happens so it's probably unrelated um but still it's pretty cool so if you go outside you can see this star and it's way less bright than it usually is and we think of this the stars as fixed and unmoving and we know they're not but uh you rarely get an opportunity to see something just as dramatic as this um I also have a bonus story that came out. It's like somebody was doing work on a on a, a paper about Betelgeuse when this all happened, and they're like, "Oh man, call a press conference. We got to get this. We got to get in the, on the news story of Betelgeuse. Betelgeuse fever is is spreading." So these scientists uh, announced that they have a, 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 a paper in which they theorize that Betelgeuse may be uh, a cannibal. Oh. Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. Plot twist, right? Um, yeah. So it's weird. Its stats are weird. So I already said it was big, but it's also mm-hmm. rotating really fast, like way faster. The stars generally, as they expand, their rotation slows. It's a little like, uh, they always say it's like a figure skater putting their arms out. Like it, sure. it, Makes it, sense. it, it will slow them down, but it's rotating way too fast for what they generally would expect. And we don't really understand why. And it also is one of the fastest moving stars in terms of like compared to background stars. Uh, it seems to have been ejected from wherever it was formed. Um, and the theory goes that maybe it was ejected with a buddy. Um, the, that there were two stars, a 16 solar mass star and a four solar mass star ejected. Um, and then at one point, the two of them collided and merged and the 16 solar mass star that we think of as Betelgeuse ate its buddy. 
and that 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 might explain in the in the computer models that these people have run that might explain the rotation it might explain uh the uh their origin and why it's all moving very fast uh, compared to the background of the galaxy um it also might mean we don't actually understand betelgeuse and its age at all it might actually be a lot younger than we think because we've been looking at it thinking it's this single star evolving you know and it's gone off of the main sequence and it's become a red supergiant but uh it's possible especially because of like some of the the elements that we see that are in betelgeuse that that uh, like i think nitrogen that, that they're like that seems to it would explain it what we see if if the interior of betelgeuse kind of got agitated because of this collision um, but that it's possible that it has way more time than we think before it b- explodes because it's what we thought was a sign of age is actually just a remnant of this collision. So there's, there's a, it's an interesting conjecture. But r- regardless of any of this, the fact is, if you can go outside and find Orion in your local sky, um, go, you know, find the belt, look to the upper left. You'll see that bright star up there. It's a lot less brighter than maybe you remember it being. And if you don't remember the brightness of that star, just uh, remember it now and then go out at some other time down the road later this uh, uh, this year or uh, some maybe in a year and notice its brightness then. And you may get a fun little treat where the, you, you actually can see dramatic variation in a bright star in the sky. And that's uh, that's pretty cool. So Beetlejuice, what, what happens next? Nobody knows. Probably it'll just slowly get brighter. And we'll say, hey, remember when it got really dim for a little while? And we'll go on with our lives. That's probably, that's the only thing that's going to happen. But that's still, I think, uh, pretty fun. Because, again, the heavens are unmoving and unchanging, except they're totally not. It's just rare that we see them at the at the span of a human, a human's attention span, let alone like lifespan. Right. And uh, with this, we've gotten this, this uh, dramatic dimming. So it's fun to... Uh, fun to see go see it yeah and in a spot that's easy to to for anyone to find right it's orion is about as easy a constellation as you're ever going to find uh in terms of the you know it's kind of like a box with that diagonal slash that's the that's the belt that you can you can probably find it uh we did want everybody know we've had a lot of people ask us about for all mankind if we were going to talk about that now that the season is over uh we have spoken about it it will be over on the incomparable, Jason. Do you know the date that's coming out? Yeah, it's it is this weekend, so uh, January eighteenth, nineteenth, somewhere in there. Um, okay. Episode, it'll be episode four ninety seven, and you can go to theincomparable dot com or just search for the incomparable in your podcast player and find it, and uh, that'll be the next episode uh, as we record this. So uh, it's it's you and me and a couple other uh, nice people talking about uh, For All Mankind the whole season. I will put the link in the show notes. That link won't work until the episode goes up, but for future yes. people, uh, th- that's where it'll be. Future people, how did the James Webb... Oh, no, sorry. I'm, they can't answer me. <laughs> no. Who got to co- commercial crew first, future people? Tell me. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't work this way. What happened to the SLS? Did, Did it make it? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, yeah. So it was a good conversation and it was uh, it was fun to get into it. And uh, yeah, I won't spoil anything past That's that. Great. All right. I think that does it. I think so. We uh, we did it. We did it. But there'll be more. That was This was packed. But the, you know what? In a fortnight, it'll be packed again because there's always stuff happening out in space. Mm-hmm. If you want to find links to stuff we spoke about, uh, head over to the website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 115, 
while you're there, you can get in touch with feedback or follow-up via email. There's also a link to our Tumblr site where we are posting links in between episodes. There's been a lot mm-hmm. of that recently because we have we took a little hiatus for the holiday. Uh, so you can check that out. You can also find us on Twitter. You can find Jason there as Snell, And you can follow me on Twitter as ISMH. Until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Adios. Adios.